Duncan, I didn't want to have a chat with you before I hit record because I realized we were going to have such a delicious exchange. <laughs> well, it, it but, is so good to see you first off. Yes, so good to see you, man. And it's been amazing to see your movements since I think I met you right when Wunderlist was sold. Just about that time, yeah. It was like either before or after, but in that mix. So, yeah. You, for those who don't know, Duncan was our keynote speaker at, I think, our second ever 7CTOs conference. So I'm so happy to see you, man. Yeah, it's good to see you again, too. It's been a while. I'm putting myself in the frame of mind I was in the last time we talked or the last time I was at the conference. And yeah, Wonderlist and Microsoft and doing the integration, it both seems like it was just a few weeks ago, but then it's been so long ago and like forever because of course my experiences at Microsoft, I was there for a while and then the pandemic and then I now work at Shopify and so lots of stuff has happened. And during that whole time, you've managed to stay in Europe. Yes. We were just riffing a little bit on the immigrant story. Do you consider yourself an immigrant? Sometimes people want to say expat, and maybe like expat is the better term, but I find it slightly offensive because it means that people who are called immigrants are somehow looked at low class and like expats are high class because expats have money and can get easier access to whatever versus immigrants who have a hard time and have to fight for services. When I have my, how do you describe it to people? They want to say expat, but really I'm an immigrant. I live in Europe. I just got my permanent residence permit for Europe and yeah, it's, it's immigrant. In fact, I put immigrant on my Twitter profile some time ago just to try to like underline that tension because for a while I had expat and then I thought about it some more and I'm like because people would run into people like I'd go to I was about the time Brexit was happening and I would go to Britain and be in a car cab ride and people would say oh you're from America huh and I'm like yeah what's it like there are there lots of immigrants trying to take all your jobs and I'm like hmm how do I say this gently I came to Europe wow. and I work here wow. am I taking somebody's job probably not but that's how you'd look at it. So therefore you see it as derogatory. So no, I'm going, I think I'm going to use this. Tell me the, so the decision to stay in Berlin, just to cap that conversation, is it because of family ties, sort of immersion, like it's nine years is starting to, you're starting to love it, right? <laughs> or are you tied down in terms of commitments? And it's really family at this point. Like I married a Greek woman. We'd already been married when I, we saw each other last and we have a kid now and her grand, her parents are much more involved in coming and traveling and seeing the kid. And my parents are very much older. And so it's a little bit more limiting to, to get back and forth to the States. And yeah, we're very much creatures of Europe now because of that. And part of it is that now that we are in a remote world, I didn't want to have to move for work. Yeah. My, my partner and I talk a lot about would it be nice to be in North America for a while? And she wants to live in North America somewhere for a year or two or something, maybe just to try it out. But we want that to be independent from work. And so when I decided it was time to leave Microsoft, one of the reasons I left Microsoft is because I probably had lots of career headroom if I had moved to Seattle. But the way Microsoft was structured, I was too far out at the periphery where I was to do much more than what I was doing. 
And even though everybody's getting better at the remote thing, there was still like the time zone bias and other kinds of things. So when it was time to leave Microsoft, I was like, okay, I want to find somewhere I can work remote. And so then I started sending out fillers and finding a place I could do that. And that's how you landed at Shopify. That is. Well, that's one reason. The other reason is I was reaching out to people that I knew and asking, hey, look, I've got this interesting background. I don't have a traditional background. I've had a very interesting path through my career. At least I think it's interesting. And I'm great for some things and maybe I'm not so great for other things. And so I wrote a few people and said, hey, do you have a Duncan shaped role? Possibly. And one of the people I wrote was Toby because I had been, I'd kept in loose touch with Toby for a long time, ever since the beginning of Ruby on Rails. And a long time ago, he had tried to recruit me to Shopify, but I wasn't going to move to Canada at the time for that. And, and so then I, but I'd kept up and I saw the post about Shopify going totally remote. And so he was one of the people I sent a note to, hey, saying, hey, now you're doing remote work. Is there a Duncan shaped role? And uh, turned out there was. <laughs> Duncan shaped role. I love that. So can you give me the, what are you doing? What does your day-to-day -day look like at Shopify? So my, my uh, title is technical advisor to the CEO. And it's, it's a concept that's been used here and there. Maybe one of the best known places it's been used is Microsoft. Steven Sanofsky was a TA for Bill Gates for a while. And there's been several since. I know Amazon has used them in, in other places. And so the role is, it's an interesting one. It's not a CTO role in the fact, in the sense that at Shopify, we have 4,000 engineers, 10,000 people. Our CTO role here is a very operational. You're in charge of lots of people doing lots of things. There's lots of assembly and other things. And because it's that way, and Toby is a very technically minded founder and he founded the company. He wrote all the first lines of code in conjunction with Cody, his, his partner at the time. He cares intensely about the technical stuff here. On the other hand, he's a CEO and he has to do things like board meetings and compensation committees and all the things that a CEO has to do that he's interested in, but he still really cares about the technology here. And so one way to define my day-to-day -day is I'm here to give him more bandwidth to spend on technical matters. Another way to put it is that in my job, I'm only responsible for the technology of the company. I don't have people responsibilities. I have a couple of people that report to me. But I don't have an empire. I don't have a structure. I don't have whatever. My duty is to, to Shopify's technology all up. And another way to put it is I'm like a co-processor for Toby. So as he's thinking through, sometimes, sometimes I'm like a rubber ducky. We talk things out and I'm, we're bouncing opinions off each other. Other times, like I'm bringing him stuff from what's happening in the company. Hey, this is happening. How do we want to resolve this and whatever? And sometimes we're talking about, okay, what's the future architecture of Shopify? Where do we want to take this? And he's got lots of opinions informed by 17 years of doing it. And I've got experience from all the things that I've done over time. And we can spend some time in that space of, okay, let's imagine for a second that Shopify wasn't built. And yet we have all the resources of current Shopify. How would we rebuild it? And we do this thought exercise, not so that we can actually rebuild it, but it's more to see what is the thing that we want Shopify to be. And then maybe if we can imagine it and sort it out, then we can take Shopify as it is there. And when we talk about it inside the company, we talk about it in terms of desired states. Like what is the desired state of the company? And then how do we make, how do we get it there? How do we do the reconciler? So if 
you think about desired state systems, an elevator is a desired state system, right? You want to go up or down, or you want to say, I want to go to floor 12 and it takes you there. And there's machinery happening to get you there. What we're doing is we're trying to figure out, okay, where do we want the elevator to go? And then, and then helping the company actually engage to do that. Yeah, and so my my I'm really intrigued. I happen to know Aaron Contora, who was also a technical advisor to Bill Gates mm-hmm. in at some point. It's always fascinating to listen to that. I always have great respect for that role being created as well, because as you mentioned, I can imagine that the role of CTO at Shopify is the you've got managing people all the time through all kinds of things. Is there a trifecta there or is there a committee approach? How does that interrelationship work? Because clearly the CTO has opinions or just in broad strokes, how does all of that come together? It's it's a committee, but it's everybody has their strengths in, 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 in the operation. And so we're all relying on each other for the parts that are the strengths. And interestingly enough, I guess anybody who's in a CTO-like position knows that at some point, the top the C-star O's and the people in the senior leadership team or whatever label that you want to give it, it's less hierarchical than it is in other places. We have hierarchy, you have to break ties and make decisions, but there's some places where it's like every particular constellation of people has its own set of norms and agreements and how it works. And so in our case, Toby is our founder. He really puts the vision in. He knows what's worked and how it hasn't over 17 years. And he has the desire and and a, and a vision to go 100 years into the future. And I come at it from my perspective. And since I'm only responsible for technology, I can be like, okay, how do these pieces go? And I contribute to the discussion that way. And Alan, our CTO, he's a very, he's a very operational CTO. So he's okay, I get, I, I get what we're doing with all these things. And of course, he brings all of his experience having done this at places like Slack and other places. So I'm not saying he doesn't contribute to the technical vision at all. He does greatly. But, but he's also like keeping his mind, okay, how are we going to get all the different pieces of the organization to assemble and actually make this happen? And so that's how we work. Another way to think about it is if you think about a graph where on one side you have the orthodox and the other side you have the unorthodox approach to something. And if you go to the extremes of the of this graph, like you have the basically dangerously or ruinously orthodox. That's the companies that have grown into a stasis of just, they do the things the way they do, they've always done it. Or it also describes a mindset of if you let any smart group of people go on something for long enough, they will establish patterns that keep things going because that's the way they work. And there's a level of orthodoxy that you want in, in, in a group of people because that's, that keeps things stable and it keeps things going. And these are the people who make sure your servers stay on and the lights happen and all the things. And then you push on out the spectrum and you get into the unorthodox. And the unorthodox, you know, these are the people that are willing to try different things and maybe having crazy thoughts about what to do stuff. And of course, this is where all the startup founders come from because they're like willing to challenge the status quo. And so the way Toby thinks as a founder is like probably way off into the unorthodox side of that spectrum. And the actual people doing the work in the organization, they lean more towards the orthodox. So there's a group of us that have to bridge that, bridge that gap. And so in some senses, Alan, our CTO, is probably closer to the majority of our folks in, 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 in the way he approaches it. And I'm closer to Toby in the way he's 
seriously going unorthodox at times in, in thinking. And through that, we translate back and forth for each other so that we can make sure that we put everybody's strengths together to get to a solution going forward. I imagine a couple things. One, the ability for a innovative, forward-thinking leader to have some sort of outlet around them that is innocuous to the rest of the organization. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you don't want to have that shortcut from idea to execution and with such incredible resources available to yourself where anything can basically be done. I admire the fact that there's an outlet created or a sparring partner completely steeped in trust and respect and clean up just the, the all the things you want for a relationship where you can say you know you fight hard and you play hard but all of that stuff is done within an understanding that the overall mission of the company is protected and the thousands of people employed by that company is protected because you have those structures in place at the top yeah, very much. Part of the reason Toby and I work well together is we were hanging out on the same IRC channels early in the development of Rails. And he, of course, was participating in the development of Rails. I was using Rails pretty early on. And there's a community of us that were hanging out in the same IRC channels and the same blogs and the same everythings. And so we had seen each other and how each other thinks and responds, especially as life happens and challenges go by. And so that from that foundation, we can do things like if we're talking about something like, okay, a lot of our systems are on Kubernetes. Kubernetes is great. What if, what if we actually built part of our system that doesn't use Kubernetes? Instead, we just package some stuff into a VM so we can ship it off to somewhere and use an autoscaler that does whatever. And you have this kind of conversation with your ops people directly. And of course, they're immediately going, oh my God, the boss is asking me to put things in VMs and ship them. Out. And Yes, at some point we actually might do that, but we need to be able to talk about that first and think about ramifications of these kinds of things and use each other to, to have these kind of spitball conversations. The other place this comes in handy is as an executive at a company of this scale, which isn't super huge, but it's not tiny either. What you say and what you do gets reduced to fortune cookies, right? So unfortunately, a lot of times when you speak as an executive, you have to use an example and that example goes out and it gets encoded as like a meme in the company and it gets stuck. And that's probably both unavoidable given realities of how human organizations and communication works. There's only so much time like an executive can spend with the rest of his team. So sometimes you have to speak in, in, in short phrases and you're like, okay, if you do this, I know that the next steps after that will be Y and Z. And so therefore, if I tell you to do this thing right now, then I know you're on the right path. And the team that you tell that to may or may not know that. And so you, an executive like, like a Toby or anybody who's strong technically really needs a partner that they can talk to where you're not dealing in fortune cookies. You are having the deep conversation and you have the context and you have the shorthand so that if you say something like, like, again, what if we put our stuff into a VM and set it up in an autoscaler? What you're really saying is not the exact words that you're using, but you're really saying something like, how do we massively simplify how we package yes. and distribute our applications so that we can reduce complexity in the system? When we say one thing, but we have the background and depth to trust and we're actually having this deeper conversation. If other people listen to that conversation, <laughs> maybe at times they're going to think we're crazy, but at other times they're going to take away the wrong 
message. And yeah, and I think the that what if mental model is so critical to innovation, to breaking free from the lethargy and the staleness and to constantly be able to say the what ifs I think is a genius method to keep ourselves on our toes, to not assume that the thing that is currently working is going to continuously be good for the organization. Yeah, that what if thing is critical. And again, it's part of the founder's mindset, but the founder's mindset is always about how do you take apart and hack through what you have or what the status quo is around you to get to somewhere else. And of course, in a company that's past the startup phase, in this case, a public company, you have a lot of people who are, they come into it and they think, okay, this is what we're doing. Whatever it is that we're doing right now is what we're doing. And they don't have necessarily the same perspective that what we're doing right now was absolutely the right thing to get us to this point in time. And so anytime I come into a discussion where I'm being critical of anything internally, I also try to bring in an energy of, I'm not trying to say you did this wrong up to this point because obviously this company over 17 years went from struggling startup to, to, to successful. And we do things like during BFCM, like running zillions of computers all, all over the place, actually powering commerce and some massive amount of global GMV during that time that's running electronically goes through our systems. We're doing all of that. And what we did to get here, all of that's correct. But how do we not delude ourselves that what got us here is going to take us to where we go? And how do we introduce and keep the thinking that has either slight unorthodoxy or even massive unorthodoxy? And how do we keep that going? But then how do we pipe that into the system so that we can keep the whole ship going forward without shaking it? Because everybody's tolerance to risk is different. Everybody's ability to care about the big picture versus the small picture is different. And these are all natural things. And this is not to say any kind of particular type of human that we have working in our organization is bad. Some people are really good at small little details. Some people are good at big picture stuff. Some people keep the lights on and things rolling on time. And some people figure out how we're going to break what we're doing in order to go forward. And we need all of those. But then we also have this trick that how do we make sure we amplify the abilities of all these people while making sure that at the end of the day, we are all moving forward and we can do that safely. I don't want to, I don't want to get too much into the let's coddle people and feel like, oh, everything has to be okay. Like really, how do you keep the organization moving forward together, even with all the necessary differences within the organization? Because you don't want a monoculture. You don't want all unorthodox people. If we have all unorthodox people, we're going to be like constantly <laughs> breaking things all over the place and never getting anything done. So we need both, but making yeah, that happen. Yeah, and I just had a brilliant conversation with Erin Fusaro. She's VP of Engineering at Chippecash. Mm-hmm. And boy, did we have a great conversation about being critical of your leaders or the leadership. And literally what you just said, the idea that we understand that this, the decisions that got us to where we are today the leadership that got us to there is good, it probably will be outdated 12 months from now, but it doesn't make the decisions that got us here wrong. Or and I love that. It's almost like saying, my parents did the best with what they had when they raised me. In, in, exactly, in, they did. In yeah. most cases, hopefully. That I could something have been better? 
always. Yes, but and I think it's I think this whole making things wrong is such a such a poison where you know if and quite frankly I've I find found this in certain cultural situations I was in where if this is what has happened then what else is going on or wow if I can't if this is the thing that your team isn't doing well now what else can't I trust and I just find that to be so poisonous because we go to this ca- catastrophe of leadership when really hey, this was one oversight that doesn't say anything about what else was decided or anything about that person. Let's just deal with that, learn from it, and let's move on. There's a thing that we do as leaders where we go around an organization and we pressure test things. We dig deep into specific parts because if we find those to be firm, then we can trust the people that are talking about it to us to do more. We trust that the rest of the things that they're saying are also okay. And then when we pressure test something and it's soft and squishy, then we get worried and then we go deeper, deeper. And unfortunately, I don't know many different ways to do that kind of thing as you've got lots of moving parts. Sometimes at some point, all you can do is walk the shop floor and pressure test stuff. But at the same time, it's, it's such a challenge to that when you find something soft and squishy to be able to put yourself into the current moment and say, okay, this is soft and squishy. What does it mean? And yes, you can catastrophize and say, if this thing's wrong, then everything must be wrong. And you know what? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. You don't know. Maybe it's just that you did happen to luckily find the one thing that the team hadn't thought about and they weren't prepared and okay. Or maybe you did find a fault line in the system. But no matter what it is to be able to go in with that mindset where it's okay, if we're going to have any tension over it, this is about the ideas and the implementation, not about the people. Because everybody that went into it has, you have to trust that they have the right motivations. And if you find out they don't have the motivations, that's a management problem. <laughs> In my case, let the managers take care of that. I don't want to cede responsibility, too much responsibility. But at some point, I, as an executive, I have to trust that my management team is doing a great job of making sure the right people are in the right places. And if that's not happening, then that's one issue. But when I go into a problem, it's, okay, we have an issue here. My big question isn't, oh, how did we end up here? Oh, how did we mess this up so bad? Although that's a natural human in- inclination and that feeling comes up and you have to do something with that feeling. But, but I try in my head to always pivot to, all right, we're here. What are we going to do about it? What's the plan? And I'm annoying some of my, some of the teams I'm working with right now because I'm having discussions where it's, okay, what's the plan? And I'll get back lots, lots of that text that says how we got here. And I'm like, okay, understood, but what's the plan? And then I'll get some other text from somebody that says lots of things about how we get there. And again, I'll say, understood, what's the plan? And it it can be a hard thing to get through because feelings are involved and people are involved and you have to deal with that part. But at the end of the day, again, every problem is what it is. You're here. So what's the plan? I try to describe it like climate change, right? We can all whine that we have carbon in the air and we should have done something different over the last 150 years or 200 years. That discussion's worthless. It's interesting. Maybe it teaches us something. So it's not worthless. But the more important decision, the more important discussion is, what are we going to do? Yeah, I I love that. uh, What just came to mind for me is that scrutiny is not a strategy. Scrutinizing. And I had a bit of a tiff with my 13-year-old son the other day because I was in that situation. I was like, he kept on trying to explain to me why he was in a certain situation. 
And I kept on trying to show him that, well, okay, I don't, and I didn't do it in the best fatherly way. I apologize. But I was like, I don't care about that side of the story. We're in this situation. What are we going to do about it? And he was really stuck on wanting to convince me that he was, that he were, we were in this situation, not, he was really hell bent on explaining to me why we were in that situation. So as I'm listening to you, I'm just wondering, wow, is this like an innate thing it as is. humans to just want to explain ourselves, the, the blame thing? It's the, a, these are very powerful human instincts. The justify thing, justify why you're doing it. And again, you know, the time for doing that. And this is why in our industry, we like the DevOps people have like, how do you do the blameless, the blameless postmortems, right? So you can look back and figure out what happened without wow. somebody typed in RM minus RF slash, right? But less important than, okay, going to Bob and saying, why the hell did you do that is, okay, somebody, this happened and here's what we want to do. So that doesn't happen again. We successfully discovered yeah. something we should never be able to do. So how do we make sure it never happens again? Right? Yeah. And, they've, and that's a gift. And so... The, the feeling that, and I think this is where we struggle as engineers who have gone up the ranks, is because we do get that it either works or it doesn't feedback, and the working state is the only state that is correct. In our management styles, our leadership styles, we have to unlearn that and be okay with a state that isn't working or isn't optimal or has waste. Mm -hmm. And so when we come across disappointments or failed execution or not thinking about all the options or lazy thinking, I find in myself, I have to be okay with myself in that situation before I start trying to lead that situation because I have my own issues around that. So having to just be okay with being wrong i think is one of the first things we have to learn so, bit of a leadership cliche but boy is always it is always hard to be able to take your reactivity and either work through it or put it aside or whatever and the faster you can put it aside yeah. the better but you you always have this reactivity to something and how to manage it and this is why I think meditation is something so many people get off into because, of course, it's all about how do you get outside your immediate thoughts, right? Not to go all loopy in, in this discussion on it. I just, it's a thought. Like, how do you get past your initial reaction and let that go and get to a point faster where it's, okay, what am I going to do? And just to cap that, the people can see in us if we're not okay with them. And so I think us showing up in our true, authentic detached from the outcome self is then something that a, another human being who you are leading or who screwed up can they can feel that and so it's, it's all about that safety to be able to do those cleanups what one thing that i just want to uh, talk about bef before we're done is we had a bit of a twitter exchange around hiring and the hiring conundrum and the take on the globalized workforce. In your role at Shopify, you, you have this, one of the tech giants view on the globe as things are moving and as you have this massive workforce. Do you want to tell me how are you perceiving the current struggle that startups are having, companies are having, the general movement of the workforce? 
Just give me some two or three free-flowing thoughts yeah. on what you're seeing and what you're feeling. So I think when we had that Twitter exchange, we're still very much in the time period where it's impossible to find people and people are ludicrous salaries are being thrown around at people because there's a shortage of engineers. And we're definitely still in that. And yet, right at the second with all the global economic indicators doing what they're doing, there's this inevitable, oh, companies are start stop hiring or at least going net zero on hiring and, and all this. So there's this we're really into the strange duality of there aren't enough developers in the world to do what we need to do. And yet economics are playing like an outsized, are going to be playing an outsized role here over the next few quarters. And that's just the way it is. But the economic, the short-term economics aside, because this will sort itself out. We, anybody who's been through the dot-com crash or 2008 or any of these downturns knows that this too will pass. But, but it is really tough to find and hire really good people. And it is tough to do so in a way that, that isn't just transactional. What do I mean by that? One of what I mean is that there's a quip that talent is everywhere. It's fairly evenly distributed. The jobs historically haven't. That's why people have gone to Silicon Valley or gone to major metropolitan areas. And we're now solidly past the world past that point in the world where good people can work from anywhere. So therefore you want to source from everywhere. So then how do you do it? And that's the bet, of course, we've taken at my current company, which is we closed down our offices and we're never going back. I guess I shouldn't say never because that's an absolutist position and we're not very absolutist sometimes on our positions. We've embraced, we fully embrace going remote and we've done specifically because of a few meta issues, one of which is Shopify had started out in Canada. They were Canadian based and they pretty much, I don't want to say they cornered the market for talent in Canada because there's lots of good companies here in Canada, but they had gotten to the point where it was like any further incremental improvements they were going to get by hiring more awesome people here was going to be just that incremental and like great talent exists in the U S and it exists in Europe. And how do they tap into that? And so going fully remote has really helped that. But at the same time, the American companies are also figuring this out. So you have Silicon Valley companies that are going, hey, we can hire remotely and we can hire people from Canada and we can give them American salaries. And, and that's created a hell of a dynamic. But through all of this, one of the things that's really come clear to me, especially as I dive through to places where people talk about this and how people do various strategies, there's some places that are like the gutter of the internet, like blind, where you dive too far into there and you're like, okay, there's some group of people who are very much mercenary. They're in for the money. And that's fine. Mm. That If that's somebody's number one priority, that's what their priority is. But then there's so much more to it than that. It's like, how do you give somebody a, a place to work and something meaningful to work on and an ability to grow and an ability to really discover what they're capable of? And so that's part of what we look at a lot and what I look at a lot. But, uh, but yeah, it's a tough, interesting time for hiring. What was the thing I said on Twitter? It's been a while since I had that conversation. I remember I had a really good yeah, quip. Let me, but let me look that up. We are, while I look that up, the thing that we're discussing at seven CTOs quite a bit right now is to not attach ourselves to the global problem statement. Oh, hiring is hard yeah. or uh, what is the market rate for engineers or, but to really dig into what is my problem now? Like what do I have a culture of X? Do I, do I have a product development roadmap that's all over the, that's all over the show, but to really look into what is it that my hiring problem is and how do I hire for that? Oh, the CTO running to the company and saying, Hey, all hiring is hard. Right. 
Maybe it isn't that hard. I think it also depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to hire a certain number of people because you believe 20 people or 200 people or 2,000 people is going to give you the ability to get something done, and you approach it with that mindset, and you you go after that metric, and I think this is one of the places where being data-driven versus data-informed can really be a problem. If you're saying, I've got to hire 200 people because that's going to give me abilities that I don't have with my current 100 people, for example, or if I've got to hire 100 people because I need to do stuff I can't do with 10 people. That's definitely the wrong way of approaching it because if you go in it with that attitude, you're just going to be trying to fill the seats and you're then you're going to be out there trying to recruit whoever you can to get in those seats and then you're going to be running into all the issues that, that you get with that. I think it's more important to determine. People talk about the 10X engineer and some of it's bullshit and some of it's actually very valuable. There are people that given the right person in the right place will do amazing things. And so it's not like there's these magical people that you can put into any situation. They'll make everything 10x better because they happen to make anything around them 10x better. But there are people that can care about a problem. And when you find somebody who cares about the problem, who falls in love with the problem rather than just the idea of providing a solution. And if you can bias yourself to look for those, then yes, you're still operating in the current job market, which is what it is. You can't do anything about it. You can whine about it. You can complain about it. You can want to give up in the face of it. But what you really need to do is at the end of the day, find those people who will help you with your mission, help you get your thing done. And if you go into it thinking, okay, I've got to hire 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000 people just because I need those people then you're playing in the commodities game and you're trying mm. to treat it as a commodities mm. market. And if you treat employment as a commodities market right now, of course, you're really, <laughs> you're just really in a world of Instead, it's more important to be like, okay, I can't have everybody I want, obviously, but how do I find the people that, that are actually going to do something here that are going to love this problem? And if I can get, get one or two of those, that can be amazing. Even in a company like the size of Shopify, what I'll see is I'll see teams that are large, but everybody is working on a problem, but they're not in, they don't necessarily, it's not their passion. It's just, they're doing it. And that's one level of productivity. And that's not to say, again, there's anything wrong with that, that there's a large part of the industry that works this way. But if we can put, sometimes we'll put like the right person on a project and just one, just maybe two, maybe there's a team of three people that are amazing that we can put somewhere. And things just explode out the gate. We get that transformative thing that we're looking for. And so I always have to remind myself when I'm talking about hiring or I'm thinking about hiring or we're talking about hiring internally, that yes, some folks approach it as a numbers game, but what I'm really more interested in is who's doing it, who has that, he, that, that capability to really excel in that role or really push this problem forward. And in that case, I don't care if you're Ruby on Rails or if you, if you rust or if you go or whatever. If you fall in love with the problem, and <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna figure that out, right? The image that came to mind for me is what I loved. What you said was the find people to me just sounds so much more uh, real than I got to go hire people. Go find the person that's gonna help you implement and build your mission is just so much more romantic to me <laughs> than the. Oh, I've got to go hire all these people to do stuff for me. And it, the image that came to mind for me was maybe the reason it sucks is because we've had to go from gatherers 
like go out to the field, gather the ones you want, the ones that look the best, to now having to be hunters of, hey, I got to go find my food. Go find the people that you that want to work with you, and it's and that 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 is not governed by market related salaries. I tell people there's people who will work with each other for free. Mm-hmm. That's an extreme. But boy, if I'm inspired to help someone, I the last thing on my mind is salary. It's I'm driven by that innate need to be in relationship with someone and what they want to build. And but yet the whole recruiting industry has just made it into this numbers game, butts in seat situation. Oh, the package this and the compensation that. And I just think a whole bunch of CTOs have sort of fallen in that landslide of, okay, here we go. This is what we all have to do. Really, this is an incredible time and opportunity to tell your story, get your build out your influence, get out there and do the work to hunt and find the people that are out there. And especially now, because as we go through the next few months or year or quarters, hopefully not years, there will be awesome people who are being whose situations are changing for whatever reasons. And in some ways, like people are fearful of like times changing or the times that are coming up. Mm. And in some ways, this is like massive opportunity time because again, if you can, if the people that you really want are suddenly becoming available, oh boy, now you can build something. And <laughs> yeah. And we all know what's happening right now. So it's uh, again, like how quickly things change since that Twitter exchange we had. It's now the layoffs are happening and it's slowing down and this is crazy. It is. It is. Duncan, thank you. Thank you. I know we went over time a little bit, but thank you so much for hanging. And it's been awesome to connect with you. Um, Likewise. 